because he has categorically refused to appear, we have no choice but to seek consequences for Mr. Bannon's failure to comply. Mr. Bannon's and Mr. Trump's privilege arguments do, however, appear to reveal one thing. They suggest that President Trump was personally involved in the planning and execution of January 6th. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. One day before a mob of MAGA fanatics stormed the Capitol, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump's former top political advisor, made a prediction to listeners on his radio show. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Just understand this. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's going to be moving. It's going to be quick. This is not a day for fantasy. This is a day for maniacal focus. Focus, focus, focus. We're coming in right over the target, okay? Exactly. This is the point of attack we always wanted. The comments were vintage Bannon, a mixture of right-wing zealotry and frat boy bravado that has made the former Breitbart publisher a cause celebre of the far right. But it also adds a lot of smoke to the charge that January 6th was not some spontaneous burst of violence, but a planned and fully instigated insurrection with Bannon's bombastic statements and actual declaration of war. Today, Madam Speaker, we are here to address one witness, Mr. Steve Bannon. I urge all Americans to watch what Mr. Bannon said on his podcast on January 5th and 6th. It is shocking and indefensible. He said all hell is going to break loose. He said, quote, we are coming in right over the target. This is the point of attack we have always wanted. Madam Speaker, there are people in this chamber right now who were evacuated with me and with the rest of us on that day during that attack. People who now seem to have forgotten the danger of the moment, the assault on the Constitution, the assault on our Congress. The rule of law remains under attack right now, said January 6th Committee Chairman Benny Thompson. If there's no accountability for these abuses, if there are different sets of rules for different types of people, then our democracy is in serious trouble. Mr. Bannon will comply with our investigation, he added, or he will face the consequences. Basically, for whatever reason, uh, he's still trying to follow Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump is not president. Uh, he, he can sue all he wants to. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, uh, his intimidations through lawsuits uh, won't get him anywhere with our committee uh, because we firmly believe that we on sound footing. The high-profile confrontation is the first of several that promised to test the boundaries of executive privilege, the presidential prerogative to keep official communication secret, and will determine how far the House committee will be able to go in uncovering the story behind the deadliest attack on the Capitol in two centuries. It appears that Mr. Bannon had substantial advanced knowledge of the plans for January 6th and likely had an important role in formulating those plans. Mr. Bannon was in the war room at the Willard on January 6th. He also appears to have detailed knowledge regarding the president's efforts to sell millions of Americans the fraud that the election was stolen. In the words of many who participated in the January 6th attack, the violence that day was in direct response 
President Trump's repeated claims from election night through January 6th that he had won the election. Mr. Trump has filed his own federal lawsuit that touches on similar questions, suing both the chairman of the investigative committee and the head of the National Archives, the custodian of his presidential records, to block the release of material the panel has requested. Many Democrats fear that case, as well as any the Justice Department might decide to bring against Mr. Bannon, which may drag on for months, potentially long enough for Republicans to gain the House majority in 2022 and bury the inquiry. And with it, any hope of fucking revealing fresh information about what precipitated the riot. Uh, we want to uh, reinstate the rule of law, that no one is above the law, that people, when they're given Legal compulsion, don't just get to decide, decide, no, I'd rather not show up. Uh, he clearly has relevant information. You alluded to some of it about what went on in the run-up to January 6th with the president, uh, President Trump, what his role in that uh, insurrection was, how much he may have been aware in advance of the propensity for violence and how much that might have been part of the plan. Uh, we also hope to let other witnesses know uh, that if they too don't do their civic duty, they will be prosecuted. The committee believes that Bannon possesses crucial information about plans to undermine President Biden's victory, including conversations Bannon had with Donald Trump in which he urged the former president to focus his efforts on January 6th. In a report recommending the House find Mr. Bannon in contempt, the committee repeatedly cited comments he made on his radio show on January 5th when Mr. Bannon promised all hell is going to break loose tomorrow, as evidence that he has some foreknowledge about extreme events that would occur the next day. Oh yeah, he played the soundbite of Steve Bannon saying, look, tomorrow's going to be wild. It's not going to go down how you expect. Um, either he was clairvoyant uh, or he knew something. You know, a lot of us predicted violence. I predicted violence on January 6th, a week or two prior. But I never expected that it would be to this level, that they would sack the Capitol. Steve Bannon seemed to know something, and we want to know what he knew. Investigators wrote that Bannon appeared to have had multiple roles relevant to his investigation, including in constructing the Stop and Steal public relations effort to spread the lies of a fraudulent election that motivated the attack and precipitating an event from a war room organized at a Washington, D.C. hotel with other allies of Trump who are seeking to overturn the election. It's going to be quite extraordinarily different. And all I can say is strap in. The group included a rogue gallery of Trump lunatics, election deniers, militia freaks, and morons bent on causing mayhem. Both Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman were present, as was Roger Stone, who left the hotel with members of the Oath Keepers militia group serving as his bodyguards. All of these people are actors. Their, their, uh, their, game, is, their game is theater. Um, their game is not action. The former president's clear objective is to stop the select committee from getting to the facts about January 6th and his lawsuit is nothing more than an attempt to delay and obstruct our probe, Mr. Thompson and Ms. Cheney wrote in response to Mr. Trump's lawsuit. Precedent and law are on our side. 
it's clear that Bannon, who wasn't even an administration official, having already been fired by Trump and other defiant Trump officials, merit prosecution for their contempt. What remains frustratingly unclear is whether Democrats, who have so far struggled this year to deliver victories on broadly popular issues, have the political courage to wade into prosecutions that will ignite the right and likely inflame an already divided nation. What it really comes down to is this. Republicans are trying to save themselves and vote away their own complicity in the events of January 6th. That is why they want to let Bannon off the hook. Without any remotely credible defense for his evasion, the Department of Justice would be hard-pressed to find an excuse to avoid its legal duty to refer Bannon's case to a grand jury. But the problem runs fucking deeper. Even cooperative Republicans have undermined congressional authority without fear of consequences. I mean, now Steve Bannon. Now Steve Bannon. Mr. Bannon is a target of the investigation for the investigation because, quote, this is from the Select Committee's own report. Quote, his efforts to plan political activity. That's the standard. You're involved in political activity, they're going to investigate you. We know what this is really about. This is about getting at President Trump. Getting at President Trump. Tried to stop, tried to stop President Trump before he was even elected with the Russia investigation. Tried to remove President Trump from office twice. While he was in office, they tried to do that. Now they're trying to get him after the fact. In moving to find a potentially jailed Bannon, Congress is invoking a power it has not used in nearly a century. One has to go back to the legendarily corrupt Warren Harding administration of the 1920s. In the wake of Harding's sprawling Teapot Dome oil scandal, the Attorney General's brother was subpoenaed but refused to testify. This led to Congress issuing a contempt order and criminal referral where he was ultimately arrested and detained. Unfortunately, this Congress is far weaker in institution. Bannon will hopefully wake Dems from their stupor and force them to finally fucking act. for the main event. Trump has once again thrown his future into the hands of the court. He's not seeking mercy or for decisions to go his way. This is purely to stall the inevitable and run out the clock. Trump is betting, or rather praying, that he can stall this until the midterms, at which point a new Republican majority puts a stop to the investigation. Democrats, though, want to force the issue and are willing to risk making martyrs out of Bannon and his fellow conspirators. We truly are teetering on the precipice here. Should Trump once again deploy his Teflon superpowers and slip away from the January 6th committee along with Bannon and his MAGA toadies, we will have lost a final chance for meaningful accountability. With all this in mind and dizzying amount of litigation coalescing around the former president, I asked Harry Littman to return to Mea Culpa and help us make sense of all the chaos. Littman is the host and mastermind behind the smash hit legal affairs podcast, 
talking feds. A former U.S. attorney and deputy attorney general, Littman can also be seen on MSNBC and CNN. In addition, he is a contributor to the Washington Post and the legal affairs columnist for the Los Angeles Times. Littman returns to mea culpa in a moment of great peril for the legitimacy and ability of Congress to stand up to what has become the criminal reign of Donald Trump, both past and present. It will also establish precedent for generations on the power of the presidency and Congress's ability to check those powers. So get ready to take some notes, folks, and let's go now to that conversation. So, Harry, Donald Trump is now suing the National Archive in Congress to prevent the release of his White House papers citing executive privilege. While the legal precedents at stake are interesting to legal scholars like yourself, what this ultimately means is Trump will once again delay the inevitable by dragging these questions through the courts. What kind of timeline do you think that we're looking at for these decisions? And are there not any measures that can be deployed to speed this process? Or is this the inevitable result of Trump abusing the system and walking in the cracks to avoid accountability? Yeah, so a lot here, Michael. It is crazy. So much of the what ails us, which is our continued ignorance of the basic things that happen, arise because of this weird feature that wouldn't have to be this way, that it takes about two years to go through the courts and Congress needs to do an investigation in less time. The short answer to your question is, you know, I think he certainly that's his play. He was told that uh, by the administrator, I'm turning over all these documents November 12th. And unless he did something, uh, it was going to go that way. And I think he's only got one, you know, he's a one trick pony by now, but it's a pretty good trick. It It is able to delay things. Is there anything that can be done? There's a lot, I think, of specific proposals that Congress could and should do. Probably any of them in our current state entail some kind of filibuster reform. And that's that's part of the whole, you know, um, brouhaha. You, short of that, all you can really do is ask individual judges to expedite things. And, you know, it's not just one judge here. If he, the, the real play is, will he get a stay? It's not on the merits. He should lose on the merits, but he's asking for a stay. So there's the, the judge that it's been assigned, an Obama appointee who I, you know, is pretty good. I don't think she'll give the stay, but then he can go to the Court of Appeals. Then he can go to the entire Court of Appeals from a panel. Then he can go to the Supreme Court. So just that will be months. And, uh, you know, the the um, courts are unlikely to give them back of the hand treatment and dismiss it in a few days. And that's the, why we have this really woeful disconnect that probably, as you say, is going to permit him to uh, once again dance through the raindrops and keep from having to comply with the law, which is 
totally clear here. I mean, it's it's actually funny if you think about it. This is no different than the way that he used to operate at the Trump organization. It's the same way that he's operating in the case of E. Jean Carroll. It's the same way that he's operating in the case of Summer Zervos and many others. It's the same in the way that I have a lawsuit pending against Trump organization for my legal fees back. And they have now made Every time we get closer, they make another motion for summary judgment. Now, they've already been denied twice, but this is the Trump playbook, and he will do this over and over and over again. And now, all of a sudden, he's claiming executive privilege without understanding that executive privilege doesn't belong to a former president and that he is not the current president of the United States. But what they are turning around and saying is that they're, in essence, with this lawsuit, all they're trying to do is to invalidate the committee's request, right, uh, for information to block the National Archive from turning over these records. And the claim is that Trump wants to and he should be entitled to conduct this broad and full privilege review of all the requested materials. Right. So he's got a couple claims. And by the way, you're right about his playbook, but normally what he tries to do is grind. I mean, you you, in part for him in a previous life, grind uh, people on the other side into submission, throw money around, et cetera. Here, it's a whole different problem, though. No one's going to grind Congress into submission. It's this time lag between how long it takes to, to do things in the court and how how long uh, it, it takes to, you know, Congress presumably needs to finish this by, say, next summer, and they're, you know, going to get um, screwed on executive privilege. Yeah. Let me say there's a Supreme Court case where and and there's their whole regulatory scheme that does give some kind of role for the um, uh, pre for a previous president, but if the current executive, as you say, definitively says, "Look, no privilege here. We only have one president at a time. Only Joe Biden and not uh, Donald Trump is bound by the take care clause." It just it's got to be up to that uh, person. But that's at least the courts have never been totally clear about it. And you can see that he could try to get into court with it. Interestingly, his papers didn't focus on that so much. He said, as you said, I need more than 30 days. That's totally bogus, Michael. There's a there is a scheme in place and it says 30 days. And that's just that's just what it is. There's no exception for big productions or slow, uh, ignorant litigants or whatever. That 30 days is just is just law. Um, And then he's saying an argument that wasn't even any good when he was president. And it's lousy now that, like, somehow Congress just doesn't have the power to investigate because it's not part of any conceivable legislation. It's just on the facts, you know, Kooky. Of course, one thing Congress wants to do is try to figure out what happened as a way of deciding whether it should pass some laws to keep it from happening again. So it's really impeccable. And there's no way that a court will eventually uphold what he's doing as a former president 
and it's all a delay game. Can they, can he wait to, can he get a stay in place? Cause you know, there are two different things here. He's asking for a stay and he's asking on the merits. If a court says, I'm not going to grant your stay. Cause I don't think you're going to win. And we'll keep thinking about the merits. That's a victory. That's fine. Because the January 6th committee can go ahead with things. If however, they say, while we're thinking about it, we'll stop the music. That's that's the death knell, as it was during the impeachments, because it keeps Jan- the January 6th committee from moving ahead. Well, but that's always Trump's motive, right, to push yeah. the boundary lines where nobody has pushed them before. And this is part of his sort of gross genius that he doesn't care about process. Process means nothing to him. As long as it benefits him. And I'll never forget when, you know, he came up with this nonsensical um, defense when he was being uh, sued or attempted to be sued by all of the lenders regarding the Trump Tower Chicago project. He comes up with this bullshit concept of economic force majeure. And I remember right. all of us sitting in the office with him, Alan Garten, myself, George Soriel, uh, which you call it, uh, Greenblatt, Jason Greenblatt, uh, Alan Weisberg, everybody's sitting in there. And he's saying, what are you talking about? It's quite frankly, it's an economic force majeure. I don't control the fact that the economy isn't doing great, that you, that buildings aren't selling right now because mortgages are tough and blah, blah, blah. They should give me a discount. And everybody sort of looked at each other, scratched our heads and said, what the fuck? Right. And so on. And they ended up winning this economic force majeure. And the problem with wins like that is what it does is it empowers Donald to believe that he controls process. It has nothing to do with like what representatives Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney said right in their joint statement. And I'm going to quote it, that they described the lawsuit as an attempt to delay and obstruct our probe. And then they turned around in the same statement and said, it's hard to imagine a more compelling public interest than trying to get answers about an attack on our democracy and an attempt to overturn the results of an election. What could be more important to the freedom of, you know, of this country, to the democracy in this country than exactly what Thompson and Cheney said? Nothing. I mean, this is the ultimate um, infuriating aspect of the Trump era. Yes, people would have liked to have seen him in jail or they would have liked to have seen policy changes. Okay, but um, that whether or not that happens as to me is so secondary to the imperative for a democracy to know just what the hell happened. JFK is assassinated. We have a big commission. 9-11 happens. We have a big uh, commission. And we've made efforts to do it here. And he's literally bobbed and weaved and smothered and thrown sand in the gears at every stage. And that success in actually keeping the nation from knowing the facts is, I think, the sternest indictment of him that there is. But, you know, you're he's so... What a guy. He did, you know, most people sign a contract and they think that's that's my contract. I think it's just for him the first step. It's like, okay, if I break it, what can I say? Or he's always 
you know, planning on lying, cheating, and stealing. And for him, the question is always not what the law requires, but what can he get away with, including, as you say, you know, just by sometimes starving out people on the other side. That's that's total, uh, you know, legitimate for him. What's really gone on here, Michael, it used to be the, that the, that when people raise executive privilege, there would be an accommodation and Congress and the executive would go back and forth. And it's Trump's novel, if you want to put it this way, um, to, uh, sort of uh, change to the system to just from the start see it as something where he can fold his arms and say no way. And that's that becomes the kind of status quo. So he it before it wasn't clear how the uh, the problem we have that we're seeing now with the difference between a lawsuit uh, basic time and con- congressional subpoenas because people had good faith and tried to work it out, et cetera. But he's just come and get me and too bad for you. And I'm, I can run out the clock. And for him, that's victory. Yeah, it is. But what he doesn't care about is all of the others that he's asking to do the same on his behalf, right? Because at yesterday's press conference, Jen Psaki said, and I quote, former President Trump used his office to incite an insurrection. If that's the Biden administration's stance, that's an actual crime that needs to be prosecuted, as are the many cases of obstruction, including what he had done to me. Why is this Justice Department pushing back against the Biden administration to punish Bannon and ultimately do its job and go after Trump for the multitude, for the plethora of crimes that we know he committed? Yeah. So a few things. I mean, you say pushing back against the Biden administration. I'm not sure, Michael. It seems to me that from, you know, when he came in, Biden really didn't have a big appetite for criminally indicting Trump. He's got some very big fish to fry. He's trying to do it now and he's stalling out. And, you know, it would be clearly stepping on a hornet's nest uh, to try to indict Trump for the, the crimes that are quite clear, say, in the Mueller report. But there's this general sense that they came into office with of like, OK, the, a political judgment maybe was reached on that or the election covered that. That's now behind us. What's different, though, is if he continues to commit crimes. He says, for example, he's in contempt or Bannon is in contempt or things he did on January 6th and they are investigating that hard. I I just don't see a way around uh, for Merrick Garland, the department, to look at it very seriously. But I'll tell you, if they do um, wind up bringing a case against Donald Trump, I don't think the White House is going to be happy about it. They've, you know, it it, it makes uh, Biden's political agenda, and that's the ball he has his uh, that his eye on, uh, harder to uh, achieve. So I think the general sense in D.C. is, man, Biden wishes this would all go away. But and maybe Garland does as well. But if you come across new criminal conduct from the sixth stay, say, and they're working, people say, oh, they're taking so much time, but they're doing it methodically. It's the biggest case the department has ever had. So they're working their way up. And if they get to a point where people say, and yeah, and this is what Trump was doing, and he was 
you know, he worked with us and tried to, you know, make it happen and was really an insurrectionist. Very, very hard for Garland to just walk away from that. But it's not simply uh, Garland, but I think the the administration that, you know, wishes it would all kind of uh, go away. One more point, and this really matters on Bannon. Bannon is they're going to vote in an hour or two to keep to have him in criminal contempt. It's clearly criminal contempt. He knows exactly what he's doing. He has no leg to stand on. He's just thumbing his nose at the committee. And the merits of executive privilege here are are a joke. He wasn't even in the executive uh, branch at the time. But the you know the notion's going to be can can they just sort of gum things up? tie him up in the courts, go into sort of a four-corner, you know, um, offense, as it were, or defense until the the clock becomes, you know, obsolete. There's a political clock, a sort of process clock in Congress, and a legal clock. And the basic problem we've learned in the last couple of years and that staring us in the face today is they're not in accord. They're just really very different. But you talk about that, the Biden administration, that Joe Biden, that Merrick Garland, they're all wishing that this will go away. Let me be very clear. Donald Trump will never let this shit go away. And every day, Captain Chaos will continue to do more stupid shit in order to make the headlines, in order to be the front page news, not necessarily because of this this cock and bullshit story about him going to run in 2024, that he's the leading Republican candidate. We all know he's not going to run. It's going to be just like the document that I wrote for him in 2011, and he'll find every other excuse. But he already sees that he can grift for the next two and a half years and soak hundreds of millions of dollars out of his supporters, which will go into his super PAC that he has complete discretion over, except for, say, 10 or 15 percent that has to go to political campaigns and so on. And the 15 or 10 percent, I forget which number it is, that he has to give to politicians as part of this PAC, he will then control them Right. With his hands around their neck, squeezing if, in fact, that they don't do everything that he commands. Now, this is dangerous. This wishing upon a star bullshit that belongs in Disneyland, not in Washington, D.C. Right. There's a difference between fantasy land and reality. And we need to live in the reality, the here and now, that this man is the single most dangerous thing to come to our democracy ever. And if they don't, if Merrick Garland doesn't get up and start doing something, then I truly believe that we are headed to an autocracy. And that's something that Donald Trump has always wanted, to be the supreme leader of the United States. Yeah. So do you think so, Mike? I mean, this is I'm, I'm going to interview uh, Adam Schiff on his new book tomorrow. And I did Costa and Woodward last week. We're doing a kind of a talking books feature on on talking feds and everyone's saying it. You know, people really believe we we dodged a bullet by that much. And 2024 is is, you know, very dangerous. But you, you just said that there's no way he's going to be the candidate. So what is the sort of doomsday scenario that you're seeing if Garland doesn't hop to? 
How how is he going to really manage to actually defeat democratic norms and rules so much that we're you know we're degraded into actually autocratic rule? What's the what's the playbook as you see it, and you see it as a serious prospect? Yeah, yeah, I do. Basically, what he's looking to do is to push the the boundary lines of democracy of our constitution, right? Whether it's what he's doing right now by telling people to defy subpoenas. I know some people don't believe that the subpoena power is really all that relevant. So far, what Trump has shown you is that you don't have to appear. How many times did CNN, MSNBC, Fox, ABC, CBS, NBC, they show up at the, at the, um, the, what do you call it, at the Capitol, and they were inside the room, yeah. and the seat remains empty. It was completely vacant, right? How many times? Too many times. Right. And basically what- it's like that. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and for those who obviously aren't seeing this, uh, Harry just gave him the old fungus sign off the chin, right? So here's the story onto it. Things like that, that chipping away at the block of democracy, that Congress has no power, that all the power exists in the executive branch. If, in fact, the stranglehold is on whoever might be the next president, the Donald Trump 2.0, fuck, for all you know, it could be Don Jr. I mean, I saw a poll that said Don Jr. is more likely to become the nominee than Ron DeSantis. Don Jr.? He's a fucking idiot. I mean, I've watched this. I've watched this lunatic in action. Now, could you imagine if that happens? Because look, not only is Donald- that's my so your basic night worry, and you think it's plausible, is Trump's not the nominee, but he's the power behind the throne, and that means autocracy. Basically, that's what you're. That's what's keeping you up nights. Correct. And yeah. something that a lot of people are also not aware: the difference between. A Trump victory in the 2020 election and a Biden victory was predicated on about 35 to 40,000 votes in three states. And had it gone the other way, I promise you, because I know this animal better than anyone. Right now, he would be working on how to remain as president for another four or eight years. Something he boldly stated pretending that it was a joke. But again, we all know Donald Trump has zero sense of humor. It was not a joke. It was a forecast into what he was thinking because he's too stupid to realize that there are things that if you are thinking, you keep to yourself. Well, Pat, let me just follow up because you're such a valuable resource. Michael, because you were right there and you know, because I was what I was thinking about when you just talked about his having, you know, power and money from from the from the political position. And we know, and you've documented better than anyone, that otherwise he's in, you know, financially woeful shape. You know, supposedly in 2016, he didn't think he'd win, but he just thought it would really build up the brand or really pave the way for getting the Moscow Trump Tower in place, et cetera. So, you you know, it sounds to me as if you think he's really shifted his ambition from just power, money, maximum kind of brand building to, you know, raw political power like of a sort of Mussolini Stalin uh, no. version. Is Vladimir right? Putin. 
It's all okay. about or, yeah. Vladimir Putin. So when, when, when and so when did he when did he change and say yeah. I know I'm not going to go for money and brand I'm going to go to be you know for total autocratic power like Putin was that just from the headiness of being president inauguration day is what yeah. he was looking at I've stated on this podcast on television in print it was the 2016 um, yeah. a, a decision to enter was predicated on making it the greatest political infomercial in the history of U.S. politics. He was basically looking, as you stated, brand building. Yeah. And then somehow he freaking <laughs> wins. And now he's saying, I'm enjoying this power. But what pisses him off, it drives him fucking mad, is when he sees somebody like Jeff Bezos worth $203, $204 billion. Yeah. It drives him mad. And then he looks and he says, you right, know, And also these rich are, guys kind of, kind of, you know, uh, turn their nose up at him, too. He's never really been, you know, accepted among the club as being a, sort of a except smooth Except when he was president because they right, needed him in point. order to continue to build their billions. But what right. he looks at is he looks at Vladimir Putin and believes that Vladimir Putin, and probably accurate, owns personally 25% of every business in Russia. Yeah. So when you see these oligarchs who are worth 20, 25 billion, yeah. well, that means that, right, um, 6 billion is sitting somewhere for Vladimir Putin. But that's only the guy has one company. P Putin has a multitude, a thousand yeah. companies just like that, which of course would make him the richest man in the world. And so, Trump, in his crazy, narcissistic, sociopathic mind, wants to be Vladimir Putin. He wants to be able to control nuclear weapons. He wants to be able to threaten people, like what he said to Kim Jong-un before they became lovers and writing love letters to one another, right? Yeah. If, in fact, you don't stop, we will unleash fire and fury on you like you've never seen before. I'm not so sure right. that that's what a president would say, but you right. know who would? A dictator, a supreme leader. Okay. And that's why I'm trying to tell you, Donald Trump never wanted to be president. He wanted to be the autocrat, the dictator, the supreme leader of the United States. And yeah. somewhere between 35,000 to 40,000 votes separated us from losing right. our democracy. Right. I mean, lunatic. people don't realize yeah, how, how, how close it is. But this is a very interesting point. And it strikes me, Michael, that, you know, when he was simply a, a, a titan of business, even though they smirk behind his back, mainly people suck up to you. Not when you're president of the United States. So he's in an interesting position. He it, it seems that criticism drives him berserk and he's so thin skinned. But unless he does completely change us into autocracy, that's that goes with the territory as a uh, president. So maybe some part of him in some impossible way wants to just squeeze all the critics, you know, and and actually make everyone uh, say, oh, we're so sorry, Donald, for how badly we treated you. And, you know, unless unless America goes down the tubes, that can never happen. Well, he's sick. 
after today's okay, criminal. Sorry, contempt- go ahead. I've turned it on you for this because well, you, you just have such special information and access. But but sorry, go. No, maybe that's uh, why this podcast. Me maybe that's why this podcast is killing it. We're doing yeah. we're doing some crazy numbers. But after today's criminal contempt vote against Steve Bannon takes place. What will actually happen from a law enforcement standpoint? I mean, in essence, how will this actually be enforced? Because I've read stories, you know, in the press that say that he could be incarcerated for up to a year. Right. That's bullshit. Right. I got three years for the president getting his pecker pulled by a porn star, along with three years of post, you know, supervised release, despite, you know, the fact that. Everything and that's, that you're I just did about, was directed that's just about over for you, right? 33 more days, 30. 33 more days. But everything that I did, I did yeah. it the direction of and for yeah. the benefit of Donald Trump. Yeah. So how does how does this actually get enforced? And what do you think, you know, would be the enforcement standpoint? Yeah. So so, Michael, this is the big question. And people, for some reason, are not focused on it. They're not looking around the corner. Here's what happens. They the full house votes contempt. And you know what? He's a you know, there's just no two ways around. He's it's complete contempt. And there is this distinction between civil and criminal contempt. It doesn't matter that he's completely willfully violating a valid subpoena. That's a criminal offense. So there's a there's now a legal regime and it says I'm referring it to the to the uh, U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia. And the worry is that's where it goes to die because it now is it falls within the the uh, it, when that was first enacted, the, the Department of Justice made a really big deal of saying, you can't force us to do this. This is our, you know, profe- pr- prosecutorial discretion. And, and then the 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 infamous, you know, or the famous Office of Legal Counsel, the ones who wrote the memo saying you can't indict a, a sitting president also have promulgated a policy that says, you know what, if Congress uh, wants us to do criminal contempt because they, they, you know, a, a current or former executive branch official didn't comply with their subpoena, we're out of it. We're not going to do that. That's really like a political squabble between executive and Congress. And we're not going to do Congress's bidding and turn it into the sort of blunderbuss of a criminal action. Now, could could Garland override that? Yes. As you saw, they already overrode their basic stance of asserting executive privilege. Here they said it's just so important. And that's one reason why they're starting with Bannon, because Bannon is the strongest case for bringing a criminal uh, charge because it's, it's so um, meritless. But if you listen carefully to what Schiff is saying, Raskin saying, Pelosi, they're saying pretty pleased. They're trying to put pressure on the department because it's not a foregone conclusion. And in fact, you know, Garland's going to take the long range view here. And if they're going and and making criminal referrals, against former executive branch officials on the Republican side, they're going to think that when the shoe's on the other foot, all of a sudden former executive branch officials from the Dem- from the Biden administration are going to be hailed before the court. So it is a really tricky, nuanced, and basically uphill 
um, uh, analysis. So I think more likely than not, Garland doesn't do it, although he's under a lot of pressure. Now, let's say he does, though, Michael. Let's say he does. What's that mean? It means they bring an indictment. And and you're right. It provides for up to a year. Got to go to court. Speedy trial rights. All of a sudden, it's still not going to play out in time. The only thing is, at the end of the day, if, you know, to date, they've been able to do these free free plays with no downside of yanking the chain of a civil contempt thing. Here, if Bannon, you know, gambles wrong and stays intransigent, there's a chance that at the end of the day, even though the congressional investigation gets stymied, he winds up in jail. Uh, and, you know, that other witnesses will take stock of that and think, do I really want to take this chance? But if if the department doesn't go for Biden, they're not, I mean, excuse me, doesn't go for Bannon, they won't go for anyone. And we're back to square one. And the sad part is this is how you erode the Constitution. This is yeah. how you erode our democracy. Because for me, let me tell you what it tells me. If I could go back in time, and I'm talking about in 2017, when I received the subpoena from the uh, Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, I should have basically told them, go fuck yourself. I'm not coming. That's what I should have said. Complies with the law. That's what they're saying, right? Not only do I. So if you comply with the law and or that's the only one I didn't even need to be subpoenaed. They asked me to come in and. I came in. Yeah. I did what I'm supposed to civically yes. do. What does it yeah. show you? That if you're stupid like I am and you show up at these requests or subpoena, there's a better than likely chance you can go to prison. But if you don't, all of a sudden there's nothing that they can do. You could ride the clock out. And this is exactly what Trump is trying to do. This is how that they erode our Constitution, our democracy. And this is exactly why I keep talking about Trump wanting to create an autocracy out of this country. And we are talking about the president of the United States, the single person government who has sworn to take care that the laws be complied with and the laws be followed. Look, think about, well, you know, Clinton. Uh, at the end of the day, it was like, OK, I you know, if I if I they said I have to show up, I'm going to show up. That meant impeachment for him and pain and, you know, convulsions for a whole lot of his family and the party, et cetera. Think of Nixon at the end of the day saying, you know, law is the law. We, we uh, you know, live in a rule of law. And that means I have to go now. It's almost like it didn't occur to people. So it's all, you know, it's almost the kind of chutzpah of, of Trump, not just the sort of cynical Machiavellianist, but just like, you know, you get a subpoena, you show up, it's the rules and his, but his approach through life. You know, I think of Mary Trump and some of the things she said, and you've seen them over the years of just like, you know, somebody needed to just, you know, whack the hell out of him in junior high or whatever, but he got the point of like, no, you know, I don't have to follow the rules, even if I'm the one person in the country who has sworn to be sure that rules are followed. It, it's a tragedy. Yeah. And again, just tragedy. one more point. I said it at the beginning. It all comes down to this real contingent fact. It shouldn't and needn't be this way. 
that it just so happens it takes all this time to go through the courts. Congress could pass a motion saying you have to decide right away or it goes right to the D.C. Circuit. There are ways to to solve it. And, you know, it's just kind of happenstance. uh, But he's been able to exploit that happenstance to as not just stay out of trouble personally, but keep, as you say, the people from knowing what the hell went down in the worst uh, you know, insurrection since at least the Civil War. That's that's intolerable for a democracy. Yeah, it is. And my my concern is that if, in fact, Bannon and Trump succeed uh, mm-hmm. in avoid giving testimony on this January 6th um, insurrection to the committee, I don't believe anyone will ever, ever adhere to a subpoena again. I really do, which basically now negates the need for any of these committees because the committee only functions within which to question potential witnesses. And if every time the committee sends out a request, you say, eh, it's kind of like getting invited to a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah. Like, nah, I'm, I'm busy <laughs> that weekend. Fun, I'm sorry. I, it's I a little bit. It's a little too. I got Saturday. more important things. Right. right. You know, there's, there's a couple of good movies out there that I want to catch. And I don't even have to give you a reason i.e. case of U.S. versus Bannon, right? There's your decision. And nobody will ever show up, which means none of these committees have any power whatsoever. And in all fairness, shouldn't even exist. Yeah, I mean, the one thing is the people who will show up will be the the people who want to do it voluntarily, which is exactly when you don't need a subpoena. So, But take here. So Jeffrey Clark, you know, is he going to show up? He's in he's in as hot, uh, the, you know, hot water as you can be. But the de- the acting attorney general at the time, Jeff Rosen, the acting deputy, Richard Donahue, they did voluntarily uh, meet with the committee and say all this stuff. So now a guy like Clark knows if he doesn't come forward, his story is just not present. And he's, you know, really looks terrible. But, you know, that's that's an unusual situation. And for the most part, a, a subpoena is about compulsion. And you're right. If they if they can just twist compulsion into if I feel like it, you know, that's a huge hit to the rule of law and Congress in particular. This the, the shift book, which just came out, you know, says that that kind of, this is the word he uses. And it's a strong word. But, you know, the, the Trump emasculated Congress's oversight power. That's, you know, that's a basic part of our separation of powers and checks and balances. And that that takes us a giant step toward the autocracy you're talking about, which is to say an executive who can work his or her will because the parts of the constitutional design to to impede it or check it have been negated. That's in the legal term uh, screwed up. (laughs) <laughs> that is a legal term. But, you know, it's right. funny. You said if Jeffrey Clark doesn't show up, it looks yeah. terrible. And I would then come back and say to you, looks terrible to who? To one side, to the Trumpists, yeah. he looks he looks bold. He looks brave. He looks strong, right? Something Trump is always trying to project. To the Democrats, he looks like a coward who's hiding yeah. something. In this partisan country right now, which is a lot of it, because of Donald, he looks like a hero 
for defying the subpoena, which brings me to this next question to you, because there's been a lot of talk about how the specter of real prison time is supposed to be a powerful motivator for potential witnesses to not obstruct Congress's investigation. My curiosity is, if you're all concerned about the potential martyrdom of someone like Steve Bannon, who may potentially use his conviction as a cause celebre, right, to the far right, what do you do here? How do we, how do we get back to normalcy? That if you get a subpoena, you appear because that's your obligation as a U.S. citizen. It's your obligation, right? in order to provide information to Congress. I mean, people forget, thanks to Donald, there are three equal branches of the law. It doesn't all rest with the executive privilege. That's something that Donald wanted, which is why the only thing he got accomplished, he accomplished through executive action, through executive privilege. It's a really good question, Michael, because, you know, that's the, 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 it's not simply Trump, but his example that is, toxic. I think 95% of the country, 98, 99, would just say, oh, I got a subpoena. I got to show up. I got a parking ticket. I got to pay it. I've been arrested. You know, it's it, you, you, it doesn't occur to you that the law is not the law. But when the president of the United States uh, makes it clear that it's just voluntary and he can get away with it, I think a lot of people think, well, as you've kind of said about your your own um, misadventure with being a good citizen. You know, was I, what kind of sucker um, was I to do it? So that kind of erosion of, you know, at the end of the day, there's a lot of rules out there, but what undergird all of them is respect for the law, respect for common obligations in society, uh, respect for one another. And he so shredded it. And you know, we thought a lot of people might have thought that, you know, this it was a terrible episode, but we kind of, of uh, you know, braved and got through the roller coaster ride. And now we're in a new normal. And it turns out not. It turns out that the um, there's quite a lot of momentum or follow through to his whole um, pernicious project. And even today, you've got an ent- well, for starters an entire party enthralled to to the ideas of a not complying with the law and but b truth being irre- irrelevant i mean that's another thing you can't, you can't build a democratic society if there's not even a, a some kind of consensus on there being facts in the world and truth so the republican party is in such a you know total um, quicksand mire, and I don't know how they get out of it, but it's not just them that's at risk. As long as they're that way and you have leaders willing to, I mean, Trump has now made it clear, and I think he will prevail. Anybody who's going to be nominee, him or, or someone else, has to take as an article of faith the big lie. That's going to have to be something they actually adhere to. You know, you start out there, and that's like a communist society. You're not, you know, I mean, if the truth doesn't prevail, we're in a fix. And you and it's just very disconcerting that, you know, a year after he got beat and had to leave, it's, you know, that that influence, uh, that cultural, social, political influence is still very alive. And everyone's scratching his head to figure out, is there a way to get past it or not? 
that's again the legal term screwed up. You know, Harry, the whole purpose of these congressional committee hearings is in essence to obtain more information yeah. from the witness and to move in directions in order to prosecute those that have violated the law or not prosecute people based upon the testimony. Not every congressional but, hearing. But in a minimum, first, get the facts. What happened? What happened? What happened? So it's both. But I'm sorry. Go so ahead. when I testified before the Honorable Elijah Cummings, God rest his soul, and I provided not just my testimony, but documents that we put up onto the board because I knew that they were going to question my credibility. So everything I used documentary evidence in order to validate the statements that I was making. From that House Oversight Committee hearing, 16 investigations got opened, including the fact that the district attorney and the attorney general have now have active investigations going on, including the fact that they were able to obtain Donald Trump's tax returns and a whole multitude of other things. Imagine if I took the position that Donald is telling Bannon, Patel, Scavino, and um, uh, who's the other jerk off? Uh, Mark Meadows, right? Not to appear. What would have happened then? There would be no investigation into Trump. He's CFO would not have been indicted. His company, his eponymous company would not be indicted. He would basically be out there skating free to continue to grift off of the United States of America for his own benefit and put this country's democracy at risk. That's why that's why Merrick Garland needs to do something. That's why Biden must insist that anybody that doesn't comply with a congressional subpoena, and it shouldn't be one year. It should be longer than that. It should be until you comply. Well, well, of course, that is how it works in the civil realm. But if they want to go civil, that means the whole, you know, taking a separate uh, lawsuit. This is exactly what they tried to do. And historically, they was the sort of remedy of choice. Hey, we're going to hold you in contempt and take you to civil, you know, in a civil suit. Oh, no, don't do that. Let's talk and accommodate. Trump was like, make my day. And and, you know, at the end of the day, it's not going to work for you because I've got this stall play. And and you know what? It's I'm going to eventually have the the leverage to just walk. Yeah, it's it's so it's so grotesque and so fundamentally contrary to basic assumptions of constitutional rule. The ability to have facts, the ability to, you know, for respect for the law, the actual um, uh, determination based on the rule of law, all that stuff, Um, you know, now Trump himself. okay, so he's the one, this pathological figure. Did you see, by the way, what he had to say about Colin Powell? What a sick puppy that guy is. Um, But but. You know, the the puzzle that we're still working out, it seems to me, Michael, is what's up with the 40 percent of people who still follow him slavishly? And what's up with the Republican Party that falls into lockstep? Because that's been the, you know, real disaster. Otherwise, he would be this stray, crazy, you know, George Wallace figure or whatever. He has somehow managed 
uh, or maybe circumstances and, and the economy, whatever, have somehow aligned that he is able to actually put people in his thrall. And that is what's the kind of, you know, Russian roulette um, pistol aimed right at democracy's head. One of the other things that you asked me is how I know that he's not going to run and how I know he's not going to run is because he knows he can't win. The numbers are just not on his side. Now, you just made a statement about how 40 percent, you know, uh, are supporters of Trump. That's actually not an accurate statement. All right. Because the way that this sort of system works right now is you have about 47, 48 percent of the country are registered Democrats. You have, say, 40 percent of the uh, Republicans and the balance are independent. The numbers are somewhere around there, at least with the last census. He doesn't control 100 percent of the Republican Party. In fact, he only controls about 40% 40% of the 40%. So it's really, he, he's about a 16 to a 20% of the Republican base. Now, that's a tremendous number. If you're a Republican and you're running for state or local office, because in certain red state areas, he knows that he does not have enough between Democrats and independents. And the independents are kind of growing in terms of size. Yeah. He knows that he cannot win and his fragile ego can never allow himself to be a two time loser. But, you know, we also talked for a second about Jeffrey Clark. And I'm curious because it came to my mind before what you're hearing about Clark and what you think he might know that can turn this investigation into something with real teeth. Look, I think we know what happened and we know Trump's role, although Before the big showdown in the Oval Office, we have nine, count them, nine conversations. Clark is a stranger to Trump at the end of December. This congressman from Pennsylvania makes the bridge and Clark presents himself as the slavish guy who will basically support the big lie and try to make it happen legally. He is, I've been in the Department of Justice, He is not first, second, third, fourth. He is one of, you know, on the fifth level. But now all of a sudden, Trump, you know, he's his port in a storm. And so I think we know the broad strokes pretty clearly. Trump said, great, I'll make you attorney general. All you have to do, it's like this, it's like the first impeachment. All you have to do is go tell Georgia there's a real problem here and that'll create chaos and shake things up. And when all is said and done, I'll figure out a, a way to have a separate Republican slate and and slide in there and get Pence to do thus and so. We, you know, we don't know exactly what was said during those eight or nine days, but they have a three hour showdown where Trump you know, is insisting and Clark is insisting, Uh, you know, I mean, and this guy's like, you know, he's a he's a punk, right? He's a, you know, level, low level guy who now thinks he's going to be acting attorney general and everybody, but everybody in the department and the White House says, if you do this, Mr. President, we are resigning on mass. You you know, this this will be a complete cat, you know, cataclysm for you. And that's what uh, shut it down. But there's no doubt that he tried to do it. No doubt that it was illegal. 
you know, we, we uh, so unlike other things, like, for instance, January 6th, what did he know and when did he know it? I think we basically have the story here, and it is an ugly, um, unethical, unpresidential, and probably illegal story, uh, though it were Clark to testify and we got a little bit of the meat on the bones, it would be good. But I would first want to hear about, you know, I would trade it in a heartbeat for knowing just what the hell, you know, what was his involvement with like the three percenters or those guys, you know, in, in, in advance of, Jan- of January 6th. So you think it's information like that, that is why um, Trump is fighting so hard to yes. keep these papers from being made public. Yes. And it, obviously, it's not just Jeffrey Clark. Right. It's probably the Josh Hawley's, the Marjorie Taylor. It's probably Rudy fucking Colludi Giuliani. Right. Much more important right. than the Clark stuff, and we know about that, Are these is, is, I think, what he really wants to keep from public view is all the stuff we know about his interactions with allies, with Hawley, you know, McCarthy, uh, Jim Jordan, but also possibly, and this would be the smoking gun, um, the actual insurrectionists. If there's any kind of, you know, even through a member of Congress or whatever, collusion, uh, not to use too loaded a term, uh, between him and the actual, you know, people who tried to physically keep uh, democracy from going forward, that would be, you know, a it, it, it would be the thing that would remove him from office if he were still in office. And the thing that I think would really uh, be the gravestone on his obituary. Well, let me ask you this then. With Trump surviving his second impeachment yeah. in the wake of January 6th, yeah. you know, I believe that we missed an opportunity to ban him yep. from seeking office ever again in the future. Right. I think it was a huge mistake by Biden. It was a by Biden? Mistake you mean by, by McConnell? Term- what do you mean by Biden? B- b- well, I'm talking about that they should have pushed it further okay. uh, in terms of the investigation. I mean, because basically, basically McConnell hid behind this canard of, well, since he's not a president, even though they knew he was guilty and everybody did. Because that's right. That was the reason to do it, to to keep him ever from holding office again. But, you know, I think that uh, Raskin and Pelosi tried and, and, you know, McConnell shut it down. Correct. Okay. Correct. But are there really no provisions in the Constitution or elsewhere that would prevent someone like a Donald Trump from running if he were found, for example, to have committed real acts of sedition or, say, even convicted of a felony in the Trump org case? Yes, that's correct. There are no such things. You could he could commit a felony. There's if he commits a sort of there's some argument the, the short answer, Michael, is that's right. If the people want, I mean, we've had this with governors, et cetera. If he shoots somebody on Fifth Avenue and announces his candidacy the next day and wins, there's there's no constitutional impediment there. Right. There is no there is nothing in the Constitution that says that a felon like myself cannot ultimately run for president or federal office. Right. It just doesn't exist. But it sucks. But because there's the one there remedy. The framer, the framer said, here's what you do. You can if you convict him, you can then have as this remedy, even if he's out of office saying that. And that was the big chance we had. Imagine how different everything would feel now if we knew he were constitutionally barred from jerking us around and doing all this and having 
You know, there's so many Republicans who you got to think hate his guts, thinks he's toxic, but feel like they have to kiss the ring. If he were, you know, constitutionally disabled, what a different country. Right. And even worse than that, if in fact they did come up with some sort of a constitutional provision that would bar him from seeking any office, he'll just use Don Jr. He'll just use Ivanka. Mm. He'll just run around again with that stronghold over people's necks. Oh, Michael, necks. we only got a couple minutes. Can we? Can we end on a slightly, slightly less well, terrible note? <laughs> well, actually, the, the I had a question for yes. you. Do you mind? Um, yes, but let me no, ask ahead, you one yeah, question shoot. first. All right, because uh, it's a question actually I've been asking every one of my guests lately, and I don't want to. I don't want to keep you. You know separated from all oh, of them. Thank you. Of I'm one of the gang. Of the I'm, various, a, I'm, I'm a Michael yes, Cohen. Are. I'm one of the Michael Cohen gang. Well, of all of the various cases and the potential cases that are swirling around the president, right, from the case of the Trump organization yeah. Yeah. with the DA, the yeah. attorney general here, uh, to what's happening in the state of Georgia, yeah. which, which of these do you think is the most likely to bear fruit in the form of a criminal indictment against Trump himself? Fulton County. So um, if it's, if you're talking criminal indictment, I, it doesn't look to me like Vance is going that that way. And it doesn't look like um, your old friend Alan Weisselberg is going to cooperate. But, you know, it's a pretty clean case down in Fulton County. It really is against Georgia law. It just takes one D.A. to uh, to do it. They've got tapes um, that I think is the most most likely criminal indictment. And then, but just to be clear, uh, the, the, it, it's, it would be for his trying to shake down the secretary of state and alter the election and deprive people of their, you know, the, the uh, I forget the exact statutory term on, uh, or, or section under Georgia law, but it would be the thing we know happened. Uh, and uh, would she would she, you know, make a the, the new Fulton County district attorney, would she uh step on the hornet's nest and try to make that happen. So, Harry, what was the question you wanted well, to ask? I was just wondering, we, you know, we talked about this a little bit before, just how, how it's been for you, how it feels for, you know, to be at the, at the um, press, you know, near total freedom. It seems to me you've been very much, you know, operating in, in, in relative liberty. You've got a gangbuster podcast going, et cetera, but you got to wear this thing and whatever. I'm just wondering. Well, I how don't wear, I don't have, I don't have, I just want to be clear. I don't okay, have, okay, I'm sorry, Homer. I haven't I'm had just one. wondering how I haven't it, had one for well yeah. over a year. How's it been? How do you feel? Are you, uh, is it going to be a big home difference confinement? Yeah. Well, home confinement. Yeah. This, there's two ways that you I mean, have we're to all home confined. like home confinement. Right. Well, you're really not, right? I appreciate the gesture, but you're really not. There's two ways to look at it. When I was in Otisville, I missed my family terribly. Yeah. I missed the ability to speak to my family. You're only entitled to 100 hours a month. That's three minutes a day. My son was in Florida. My daughter, you know, is here in New York. My wife is here in New York. Couldn't speak to my parents. You all basically you could do is call, say hello, and then hang up. And if there's an issue, as you know, with any parent that has children or spouse or parents or what have you, there's always an issue. And that will force you to exceed the three-minute time. Uh, and so I miss my family terribly. I've never been away from them in the in 27 years that I'm married to my wife. So being on home confinement is a blessing. It's a blessing. 
in comparison. However, no matter how big your home, no matter how small your home, the walls close in on you after 18 months. And with someone like myself, who basically has provided in excess of 400 hours worth of testimony that has created 18 investigations, obtained things like the tax returns of the Trump organization and Donald, has created indictments. Every request to the Southern District of New York, to guys like Nick Ruse or Thomas McKay, right? Even Judge Pauly, when he was still alive, uh, had been met with resistance to provide me with anything, not a minute, not a second of, of freedom uh, greater than what I'm entitled to. And they will run me what's known in the prison world as door to door. And I think it's disgraceful. You know, what's the first behalf, thing you're going to do, Michael, because we're almost out of time. What's the first thing you're going to do in 33 days? I'm going to have a virtual party uh-huh. uh, that all of my supporters, both Maya Culpa, as well as on my Instagram and my my Twitter account, I'm going to have a uh, a virtual party so that we can all celebrate together. And then I'm just going to take my wife and children out, you know, for Thanksgiving dinner. Go to Central Park. So, but, you know, yeah. but yeah, well, I go there every single day. But I do just want to ask one yeah. last thing, because one of the big topics that just recently came out is George Stephanopoulos did this um, Q&A with Christopher Steele, yes. a.k.a. Austin Powers, right? Um, speaking really quickly about the Steele dossier, because I saw you on television today, um, Christopher Steele, right, emerged, you know, doing this freaking bizarre and obviously self-serving interview with ABC Stephanopoulos that's shown uh, on Hulu. And most of the dossier was discredited. Now, Things that people are saying on Twitter and other social media is that um, there are things in the dossier that are true. I've never attacked the dossier as an entire piece, though I think it's garbage. I've only attacked the 11 allegations that were raised against me, right? Specifically, uh, things like me being in Prague or my cell phone pinging off of a tower outside of um, Czechoslovakia. Now, It's been shown by that the FBI, it's been shown by the uh, DOJ's inspector general, by the Mueller team. I've never been to Prague. I've I've never been there. I've testified under oath to nine different committees, to law enforcement. I've never been there. And at the time that they claimed that I was there, in fact, I was at USC with my son, who was a baseball player, meeting with the coaches who were wow, looking to potentially scout him. That's pretty good. Yeah. yeah, he's well, he's a he's a six two lefty, um, you know, so he's perfect for them. I've never been to Prague and I want to put it out there. I've never. But in the stranger bits, especially as it relates to Trump's golden shower, they continue. This nonsense continues to reemerge mainly because Trump himself walked right into it by stating before this group of GOP donors that he doesn't like getting pissed on. Now, for the life of me, I can't understand why even Trump would go back there. Do you think Trump is cognitively fucked up these days? You know, I a long time ago decided there's just no profit in really trying to psychoanalyze that that guy. Uh, you know, there's some DSM-4 thing happening, I think, for sure. I'll just say a couple things about Steele because yes, he was, you know, really trash, but and I'm not I'm not here to endorse any particular supposition there, but 
first. He is, he's not like a Papadopoulos guy or whatever. He was a respected uh, guy with a history in British intelligence and people, you know, that that uh, he had a track record. Second, it's natural that a kind of document like that is hit or miss. That's how it's designed to be. So, and, you know, and then third, it's impossible to believe. And yet, you know, what the hell is the story with, with Trump's coziness with Russia? And is there some kind of leverage? It would seem to explain things, but so would certain psychopathologies. So I just want to say that, you know, to the extent his work and the whole dossier has been kind of made to be some, you know, complete um, fantasy. I think it's probably, and people I know well have have endorsed, it's probably, it's par for the course. There's probably some good stuff in there, bad stuff in there, but he's not, he's not the kind of bozo who was just making crap uh, up. So, you know, it's one of the things that but we're let me stuck stop with without a historical Harry, let record. Me just one stop. day yeah, we'll but- know. But let me stop you for one quick second. There are 11 allegations that he raised against me. And again, I don't talk about the dossier as a whole, the P tape, the nonsense. I don't care. I'm only referring to myself. I hear you, Michael, does not. you saw that New Yorker article. Somebody told him Cohen had been there and this is what he did with his passport. And he went somewhere else and then traveled through Czechoslovakia, et cetera. False. I understand. The only thing I'm saying is, it wasn't as some of the things in Trump world are, I don't think, my best guess, made up out of thin air. Somebody told him that. And it, it, it doesn't bear out. But when you do documents like this, stuff doesn't bear out. I'm only saying that, interestingly enough, it remains to be seen whether there's 20 percent, 30 percent, 50 percent, which would already be high a valid stuff in there. And, you know, I'm not, yes, I'll let's leave the P out of there and let's leave Cohen and Czechoslovakia out of there. But some of the basic Trump Tower things that, that you know well, you know, that he wanted to do in Moscow. And does that explain things? We, I, I think we can't, to which, we can't say yes. no yet. That's correct. To yeah. which I also testified yeah. before the House Oversight Committee yeah. to yeah. the same. But Harry, let me say thank you. Oh, my pleasure, It's always Michael. great to Thanks see you. Looking forward to seeing you more and to see you um, uh, you continuing to do the circuit on television. Look forward to it all the time. Okay. Thanks, Michael. Bye-bye. And now for today's mea culpa. In listening to Harry Littman, I am reminded of the countless times I filed lawsuits for Donald Trump in an effort to stall delay, silence, or intimidate the other side. Trump did not believe in the concept of guilt or innocence. For him, there was just winning and losing and the ability to scare the shit out of some poor schmuck by slapping him with a $25 million lawsuit. I can't begin to tell you how many people or institutions I sued on his behalf over the 11 years that I did his bidding. But needless to say, it was a fucking lot. That's because Donald Trump loves to sue people. For him, it's sport. He craves the satisfaction of being right, of having the last word, and screwing those who have screwed him. Quite literally, it fuels him. This is obviously well-documented, and for years he was allowed to abuse the system with impunity. 
All of this culminated in his ridiculous and seditious attempt to overturn the election, which he ran with all the finesse of a fucking imbecile condo board president. He flooded the zone with bogus lawsuits and hoped by clogging the system with shit, he could find a loophole that would put him back on top. High risk, high reward, but also illegal and idiotic. Unsurprisingly, Trump went zero for 65 in these lawsuits. His legal team ridiculed for not knowing the fucking laws that they wished to overturn and generally getting laughed out of court. But the seed had been planted. Those lawsuits allowed Trump to keep his lies circulating long after they had been disproven. This allowed them to take root like a virus and spread. Suddenly, whole swaths of this country didn't know what to believe, and that was really the plan all along. Not necessarily to overthrow the republic, but to confuse the shit out of the republic long enough for Trump to sneak back to the White House. Trump has always had a dim view of his MAGA base beyond their power to deliver him into the White House. In essence, they are people to be scammed and fooled. To Trump, they are just suckers and schmucks who will give him money. And he counted on his ability to convince these rubes that he was the rightful winner of the 2020 election. January 6th is where all came to an end and where I hope this courtroom gymnastics will finally implode in spectacular fashion. The longer he stalls in the courts, the more time he allows for memories to fade about the true facts surrounding that day. We must all do everything possible to keep the truth alive. I know the playbook, and the only remedy is to continue to tell the truth. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. This is my mea culpa.